you are listening to Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea. Many have wondered why Jeff and Brian feel they are qualified to do a podcast in which they talk about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Hello, I am Dr. Julie Lesnick, Professor of Anthropology and Researcher of Human Evolution, so I can tell you with utmost authority that the reason is because there are a couple of ignorant who don't know better. Hi there. Welcome to Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea. This is Jeff, and I'm with my friend Brian, and we'll be talking about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in all its forms. But before we do that, Let's listen to a message from one of our proud sponsors. This episode of Digital Watches, our pretty neat idea, is brought to you by the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation. Hey Jeff, that plastic pal I got from Sirius Cybernetics is starting to annoy me. Oh no, Brian. What's wrong with it? Well, it grinds when it moves and it brings me no joy. Is that it? No, it ate my hat and uh, it had sex with my cat. Anything else? It bled oil on the floor, and it ripped off my door, and I can't stand it anymore. Well, don't bother calling their complaints department. They won't give a fig. They'll just tell you to go stick your head in a pig. Hello, this is Jeff. This is the section I like to call, What in Life, the Universe, and Everything Are They Talking About? This is where I will summarize everything we are talking about this episode. Zaphod Beeblebrox survived the Hagunanon Admiral who had evolved into the ravenous bugbladder beast of Trawl. After he was eaten, the Admiral immediately evolved into an escape capsule. The next night, Zaphod went into a coma and came to himself in a dream that triggered a 20-year-old memory he implanted, telling him to go see a man named Zarniwoop at the offices of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Zaphod arrived and, inexplicably, met Marvin in the lobby. Zaphod went up to Zarniwoop's office and was kidnapped along with the building housing the offices of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by the Frogstar fighters. Zaphod is taken to the Frogstar where he is put in the total perspective vortex. He saw the entire unimaginable infinity of creation and his relation to it. He learned he was a really great guy. Ford and Arthur were rescued from prehistoric Earth by Zaphod in the Heart of Gold. The Vogons attacked the Heart of Gold in collusion with brain care specialist Gag Helfront to make sure there are no survivors from the planet Earth. The Heart of Gold is able to evade the Vogons using the infinite improbability drive with the help of the ghost of Zaphod's great-grandfather. Their escape brings them to a planet where they landed on a 15-mile-high statue of Arthur. On the planet's surface, Arthur meets an archaeologist, Lintilla, and two of her clones. Zaphod and Ford discover a derelict spaceport and finally meet Zarniwoop. He was in the first-class cabin of a ship, experiencing a slight delay. Twenty years ago, Zarniwoop, Zaphod, and others came up with a scheme to find out who was really ruling the universe. Zaphod stole the heart of gold to bring it to the artificial universe created in Zarniwoop's office. Arthur, Lintilla, and Marvin walk to the derelict spaceport to search for parts to repair Lintilla's ship. On the way, they are diverted to the Heart of Gold. 
the artificial universe is dismantled, and the heart of gold is used to get to a remote cabin where the man who rules the universe lives with his cat. The man who rules the universe reveals that Zaphod was one of the people responsible for ordering the destruction of Earth. After hearing this, Arthur storms out of the cabin and leaves in the heart of gold with Lintilla and Marvin. Apparently, Trillian also escaped and then got married. Hey Brian, how you doing today? I'm great, Jeff. How are you? Well, I'm feeling virulent. <laughs> virulent? Yes. I just wanted to prove to myself that I could say that word on command. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not the best thing to say with the pandemic hanging around. However, I messed it up so much last episode, I needed to prove to everybody that oh. it was a word I could say. <laughs> Well, I think we get to repeat it here in this uh, particular podcast today. At least there's one reference to it. I don't oh. know whether it's something well, see, that that's we'll not come in up my notes. Not. So. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to start commenting about the the COVID nineteen uh, shots, but uh... no, no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go down that road. This is this is a happy <laughs> podcast. There you go. I'm completely vaccinated, by the way, just in case. I got my third shot about three weeks ago. Oh, you've got your booster. I didn't get the the booster. I'm not. I'm not old enough. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. So again, after listening to our last podcast, I justified something in my mind that didn't make sense when we were recording the episode. But then when I'm listening to yes. it back, I'm like, well, here, this this makes sense. If you remember. When they were on the Hagunenon Admiral's flagship, Arthur told a great joke about the longer arms and drinking coffee that nobody seemed to get or find right. funny. And yes. I couldn't figure out how it was possible that Arthur, of all people, told a joke that nobody got or went over their heads. And it was an actually good joke. But I've come yes. up with a theory or two. Okay. It could be simply that Earth humor is not appreciated anywhere else in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> or, since because the Babelfish and everybody is hearing a translation, maybe the joke doesn't translate well into whatever other language that they're listening to. <laughs> but that still leaves Trillian, who is from mm -hmm. Earth and speaks English. Yes. But I know from personal experience that when I say something that I believe to be clever or funny, it is rarely appreciated by the women around me. <laughs> so oh, that gosh, was my yep. <laughs> that was my takeaway <laughs> from what I didn't understand the first time. <laughs> you got it. Hey, yes. it makes perfect sense to me, and I, I still can't get over chucker boots, so I'm still stuck. Chucker <laughs> boots. Well, the only thing I can say about the chucker boots reference is that. I believe she does say a box of size nine chucker boots. And if it's okay. a box, the nine was on the box. There you go. That's a possibility. You know, but all it of is the a boxes... question that Arthur asks, you know. Yes, it is. How did she know they were size nine? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Are we just avoiding getting into this next episode or what? <laughs> Uh, I guess so. What I want—I'm going to start with 
my overall feelings about the whole secondary phase. I found that secondary phase has many things that were very funny and clever and insightful. But when it comes to the plot story, it struggles. There's a lot of things that happen that they don't even try to explain, except to say they got lucky. Exactly. (laughs) I've listened to this many times, many years ago while driving, and I know the story of primary phase inside and out. And when I was trying to remember what the actual story was for secondary phase, I couldn't remember. And I guess I just enjoyed the ride and paid no attention to or couldn't figure out where it went. And I just enjoyed the joke after joke after joke versus a story. So what are Hmm. your initial impressions about secondary phase? I agree. It's funny because I do remember some of the the specific areas of the story when we reviewed it. But overall, this series uh, or series of episodes is pretty plot thin And it's still laden with a lot of jokes, like you say. Yes. All right. So the way it starts out, and this to me, I forgot about this. And it did it to me again, just the way it did the first time I heard it. And Peter Jones, who portrays the book on the radio series, does such a great job. But I actually get chills and goosebumps with the opening line. And that is... There is a theory which states that if ever anyone discovers exactly what the universe is for and why it is here, it will instantly disappear and be replaced by something even more bizarrely inexplicable. There is another theory which states that this has already happened. The first (laughs) time I heard that, it was like, it was like, like profound, especially when it comes to the universe of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And then, of course, he can't leave well enough alone, and he adds a third theory that the first two theories were made up by an editor of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to sell more books. And it's like, man, you know, you had this this perfect opening that you got to spoil by <laughs> trying to make a joke out of it. There so anyway, <laughs> do you like that opening as much as I do? I do. I think it's incredible. As we get into this podcast you'll find a little bit further in about how they play with this whole universe concept yes i think so yes so when they finally get around to advancing the story uh, we discover that zephod has been picked up while hitchhiking by a mega freighter headed for ursa minor and the home of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy the first thing i want to do is i want to discuss the escape so the last we heard, <laughs> Zephod <laughs> was being eaten by the ravenous bug bladder beast of Trawl that the Admiral had evolved into. Correct. Zephod explains that he escaped because the Admiral quickly evolved again into an escape capsule. They say that Trillian survived, but was carried off and forcibly married to the president of the Algolian chapter of the Galactic Rotary Club. I guess they didn't <laughs> want us to wonder what happened to her, but... I would rather have us wondering than have that for an explanation of what happened to Trillian. Yeah, I I agree with you about Trillian. I think that they were kind of like one of those things where they've written you off because the actress is not available or something and they they just don't want to mess with it. It felt a little trite and incomplete. Yes, yes, I completely agree. 
So the other thing about that was the cynical side of me said that because they introduced the character Lintilla, that they couldn't have any more than one female character in the show. So they had to get rid of Trillian. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know about that. They also say that Marvin had a number of amazing adventures, which he has been unable to explain, and he just shows up in the episode. Would they not all have been in the same escape capsule if they were eaten by the same ravenous bug bladder beast of Troll who then evolved into a space capsule? I don't know how they all got split up. Right. Well, well Marvin wouldn't have been eaten by the bug bladder beast, was he? I, I can't recall. Is that is that what they said it was happening? Yes, he even lost an arm. And his ennui was unbearable. Yes, I remember that. That's my favorite <laughs> line in that episode. <laughs> Anyway, after however they all escaped, uh, Zaphod went into a coma and had a dream. And so I said, with his sudden realization of his original mission, he must have lost all interest in Trillian, and he ditched her and left to do what he was going to do, to what seems to be a very unpleasant situation. I mean, it's like it's not a happy ending for Trillian, (laughs) so I don't know why he went that, you know, forcibly married just is weird. I believe he would not have a problem ditching Marvin. (laughs) No. Marvin is useful in in what he's able to do for them when it's required. Yes, he is. When Marvin inexplicably shows up at the elevators, he made no mention or asked any questions to Marvin about anything that that happened. And that's a little bit jumping ahead because I don't even think that we've got there yet in everything that we have talked about so far we basically just got that that Zaphod has been picked up by a mega freighter heading towards the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy headquarters on ursa minor during that discussion with the people who picked him up hitchhiking he's trying to get them to drop him off with a some kind of other not an escape pod but some other kind of capsule because he doesn't want to land. He wants to go there anonymously and just kind of sneak in. And the guy says something about him leading a very interesting life. Which is where they get to the point that they talk about the planet Group Kidron 13. And every species or every place in the universe has some kind of a saying like the grass is always greener. Meaning that people are always jealous of other people even though they shouldn't be. Except for this one planet The reason I'm bringing this up is because my internet identity has been a misspelling (laughs) of this. Because it's the radio show that I actually heard it and it caught my ear and I'm like, I really Mm -hmm. like this thing. So the planet Group Kidron 13 is so amazingly beautiful that the best the grass is always greener that they could come up with is the other Sheltonax Jupilberry shrub is always a more mauvey shade of pinky russet. And the best way to not be unhappy is to not have a word for it. So <laughs> Jupilberry has been my my identity online forever mm-hmm. since I had yes. an internet identity. Well, you still have AOL, don't you? <laughs> I do still have AOL. <laughs> now who's old? <laughs> yeah. Lazy. <laughs> Lazy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I wish we could just jump around because there's another 
I mean, we can do whatever we want. I, I'm going to do this because it, it's really funny. But in the next episode, episode eight, um, okay. there's uh, they're, they're talking about the man who developed the total perspective vortex. And <laughs> he originally decided to develop this vortex just to annoy his wife. Yes. In that sequence, uh, they're talking about him and they say he was a dreamer. A speculative thinker, or as his wife would have it, an idiot. <laughs> yeah, that particular line. Now talk about how old I am. Yeah, that line. I wrote that down on a piece of paper and hung it on a corkboard, and I use that for MySpace introduction stuff. Okay, you remember MySpace? I remember MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> but just barely, right? <laughs> just barely. I actually never had a MySpace. Oh, okay. Well, it was one of those, I don't know, they they ask you for a theme or, or something at that point, and that was that was a statement that was attached to my life for, for many, many years. So um, it, <laughs> yes. it goes back to my in introduction to social media and uh, that kind of thing. So I know we're off track, but uh, that that's good. Um, I'm going to say that, that this episode of ours will be like secondary phase, as in all over the place and not in any chronological order. <laughs> that almost makes more sense because of the way this particular series of episodes comes together. It just, it jumps like future past, future past, and it, there isn't a standard thread. It goes back and forth. So the only way we can do it is to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Speaking of out of order, they just jump and let us see what happened to Ford and Arthur. Right. They have to solve the problem of how to flag down a potential spaceship. The ship was a ghostly apparition, right. and it disappeared every time they picked up the booze, and it reappeared when they put it down. And this is where they blatantly introduce that there is a character named Rooster as a guy who really knows where his towel is. So they yes. finally... They finally talk about the towel, and they talk about the towel right. a lot. Again, that's part of the reason that that became an issue is because this is after the book has been released. Yes. I just laugh. You know, when you listen to it over and over and over, it's when you catch things. Later, Zaphod is paired up with this character named Rooster. Yes. Ford talking about Rooster as a guy who knows where his towel is has nothing to do with anything but to introduce that there is a character named Rooster, who evidently we're going to meet later, and Towel. It's like, we need a segue of how to talk about a Towel. <laughs> so let's <laughs> let's mention Rooster, who's going to show up later. And Ford introduces Rooster as his friend. And later in the episode... Rooster introduces himself as a friend, but he never mentions Ford. It's just right. like... <laughs> it's so funny because I'm looking at my notes, and as I wrote this, I literally have like a space on the page and the word towel with an arrow pointing toward it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, that that's how 
obscurely, you know, obvious. <laughs> they just stuck it into this episode. Uh, yes. And of course, the towel has become the the quintessential device for understanding that you are, in fact, a hitchhiker fan. Uh, yes. So it, it, it's funny. I don't want to talk too much about it, but there are things in this episode that he creates that are tremendous. The elevators mm-hmm. are happy vertical people transporters that use defocused temporal perception. So the elevator is ready for you at your floor before you even know you needed it. But because they're able to see into the future, many of them get depressed. They're out of order all the time because they're just sulking in the basement. So a man saw a history book and reinvented and patented this staircase. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And it's during that part of the discussion where they say that it avoided all that difficulty of standing around, making friends that people were forced to do before when they were waiting for an elevator. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I have a feeling that we're going to go off on these, these tangents and then I'm always going to try and then bring back the way the story progresses by one step. So the story takes one step and then they do all these tangents and then it takes another step. Zaphod gets to the planet. He gets to the hitchhiker's offices in his dream that he had, he was told he needed to see a man named Zarniwoop at the Hitchhiker's Guide offices. So that's who he's trying to see. He's told he's on the fifth floor. He goes to the elevator. Marvin shows up. <laughs> Just out of nowhere, Marvin shows up and gets on the elevator with him. This is where we learn really about the defocused temporal perception Because the elevator does not want to go up because it knows the future and it knows that there's danger. They eventually go up to the fifth floor. And this is another one of these doesn't make sense. The only reason the elevator brought them to the fifth floor was because he liked your robot. So on one hand, (laughs) nobody likes Marvin. But on the other hand, they do talk about all of the elevators being depressed. And they met another depressed Mm -hmm. robot. So I think that's how they bonded in their, their, because <laughs> that's the only way I could figure out why the elevator liked Marvin. Yeah, well, I, I kind of figured that Marvin's having a conversation that none of us can hear because obviously he's connected on, on a different level with these particular machines. So, oh yeah, that I agree. I think, I think you're right. It's the overall concept that they're depressed and he's depressed and they like each other for that. But right. uh, I do nobody think else that does. Marvin is having a conversation with, uh, all the machines and equipment that's going on around him, even though we only hear what he says verbally. Yes, I have I have no doubt that he is having many conversations we don't hear to unwilling participants, mostly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I do like, well, we're talking about Marvin and uh, Zaphod is, is grumbling and complaining because shortly after they do reach the fifth floor, uh, things start shaking and the, the building starts uh, moving around. And uh, he realizes that it's being bombed. And Zaphod turns to Marvin and said, who would bomb a, a publishing company? And, and Marvin says, another publishing company? I just think, you know, those little jabs. Marvin is a great character in my mind. Absolutely. And then that is where Marvin, again, comes in handy for Zaphod because yep. he gets to the fifth floor. This is where Zaphod meets Rooster. They run over mm-hmm. to Zarni Whoop's office, 
but there is a Frogstar robot class D that is being sent after Zaphod. And Zaphod says, Marvin, stop that robot as he runs off. And and that whole <laughs> interchange or whatever between Marvin and the Frogstar robot is is priceless. Yep. And it's plausible. In other words, mm-hmm. that's how it would happen. It's not like, oh, how is he going to get out of this one? When he does, you're like, that made perfect sense. And then the best is <laughs> Marvin going, what a depressingly stupid machine. <laughs> that and when he says, what do you think they gave me? Not an electronic <laughs> sausage. <laughs> yes. Wait, wait, wait. You're, you're, you're really misunderstanding the relationship between man and robot. <laughs> Oh, and I could just imagine an electronic sausage and be wielding it as a robot. <laughs> that brings us to the end of that episode. Oh, my goodness. Yes, Isn't that it amazing? does. Yes. Five more to and go. The only other thing that I thought was hysterical is when the narrator is going over the list of characters at the end, he uses the, the words uh, uh, other electronic jiggery pokery. <laughs> I just love those two words. <laughs> yes. I want to say, if you tell a joke, and then you tell the opposite joke, do they cancel each other out? And what I mean (laughs) is, in primary phase, Mm -hmm. due to the problems of stress and nervous tension, they told us in advance everything that would happen with the missiles at Magrathea. So there's this, because of nervous tension being such a problem, we have to tell you what's going to happen. But now, Mm -hmm. in this episode... They hold off on telling us about the total perspective vortex to occasion sensations of fear and anxiety within the legal limits. <laughs> so in primary phase, they have to mm-hmm. divulge to not cause any stress. But in here, they're intentionally doing it. It's like the opposite joke. Well, opposite, but he does say within the legal limits. <laughs> so he, he definitely have defined the stress level that's adequately available to each, uh, you know, the individual. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. So then they jump forward in time or back in time, depending on your perspective, and they go back to the potential spaceship with Arthur and Ford. Evidently, what happened is that Arthur and Ford decided that they might as well just wave a towel at the spaceship. And the towel blew out of Arthur's hand, went into a river, got covered by lava, was turned into a meteorite when the Vogons destroyed the Earth, and Zaphod picked it up by the infinite improbability drive, so knew where they were because Ford's towel or Arthur's towel got shot through a meteorite. So he shows up. Yes. Well, again, I, I know we've talked about how puzzling it is, and, and literally I mean that puzzling, but they're putting it together in a way that's supportive of the concept of, I don't know what you want to say, the strings of their relationship are permanently put together. Now, I, I have no faith in the fact that Zaphod, in fact, chose to go to that planet to save them I think oh, no. the infinite improbability drive just went off and picked them up you know yes. without Zaphod directing anything because as we know he's deliriously drunk at the time that he <laughs> yes there. yeah no he did not make a conscious decision to go save them no although he does tell them that he did you know 
Because of that's safe spot. <laughs> yes. So this series of earthquakes and things happen, and Arthur and Ford find themselves stuck in a crack in the ground under a giant boulder you can't move with no hope of rescue. And Ford's like, mm-hmm. well, let's let's look in the guide. It's like, what are you talking about? Oh, they've got they've got answers for everything. And then they start the book, and the book says, what to do if you are stuck in a crack in the ground under a giant boulder you can't move with no hope of rescue. <laughs> the book says in response to life, consider how lucky you are. It won't be bothering you for much longer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wrote it down. Be thankful how great life has been so far. Or be happy it won't be bothering you much longer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that is. <laughs> so this is where the got lucky comes in. Hey, how did you escape the? Yep. Hey, I got lucky. This, this, this. Oh, and then he's like, oh, you got lucky too. So again, there's no even attempt to make any sense of it. It's just everybody got lucky. Now I think we actually get to episode nine. Is that where you are? Yeah, the only thing I have here is a little bit about when Zaphod reaches the Frog Star and he's being directed by the disembodied voice. Uh, yes. And the voice just says, just follow the humming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 and of course, after or at some point in describing the, the vortex there, the person who developed it comes to realize after he developed it and wiped out his wife's brain that the one thing you cannot afford to have is a sense of proportion. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Another thing that I find a little disappointing is that they did mention that Ford and Arthur were stuck on Earth for two years before they were rescued by Zaphod. Mm-hmm. And in all of these two years, this never came up. But now that they're rescued and back on the Heart of Gold, and there's a fleet of Vogon ships behind them, all of a sudden Ford realizes and decides to mention to Arthur that demolishing planets was done away with centuries ago. It's like, wait up. Having the Earth being destroyed by by the Vogons when it was happening didn't seem odd to you. But two years later, you're realizing that it was done away with centuries ago. I, I do wonder about that particular thing, but they're also trying to create the, the tension that happens in the end, uh, or not the end, but in the last episode of this particular series where we discover something more about the process of the destruction. All right. Well, my other disappointing thing? Sure. Prostetnik Vogon Jeltz is tasked with tying up the loose ends, and he has to make sure yes. there are no survivors from planet Earth. Trillion is still around and was only on Earth six months less than Arthur. Right. But I don't think that they know of Trillion in that particular aspect. I mean, I'm not sure how they would would know that Trillion left the Earth six months prior. I mean, she was hanging around with Zaphod, so maybe they know because of that. But they would recognize that Arthur came off the planet at the last moment. But I don't know how they would know. I mean, how would they know that Trillion left if you want to go in the category of how did they know? Yes. When they, well, this isn't about, this is about a completely different subject. And it's like, well, if they can know this, then they should be able to know that. Which is when mm-hmm. Zaphod was on the mega freighter, when he was hitchhiking, he told them to turn on the news. Yes. And the news yes. knew that Zaphod was eaten by the Hagonenons that 
that transformed into the ravenous bug bladder beast of Troll. How did they know that? <laughs> oh, um, well, we assume that some of the people from Troll, you know, lived through that process. I, I, I guess maybe, maybe that must be it. But I was you know? like listening to this news report going, how could they possibly know what happened? <laughs> Well, and, and we were talking about that earlier with the Troll and, and the Hagunenons and how they were eaten. And all of the furniture becomes uh, different. They evolve. And right. I don't know that it says specifically that only the captain evolves into a, a, a bug bladder beast. But I'm thinking that there's more than one of them at that time because they, they appear to be eaten by the furniture, it says. You know, so everything there, there's more than one of them on that particular ship. And of course, even then, we know that the one that eats Zaphod and, and possibly Trillian and possibly uh, uh, Marvin turns into an escape pod and they escape with the escape pod. But that means that the ship still exists. And that means that all those individual characters that were on the ship still exist. So. You know, that's how I think the news probably got out because right. it would be news to them because Zephod's, of course, the president of the yes. galaxy, you know. So your interpretation so, is that there were multiple ravenous bug bladder beast of trolls, not just a single one. That's that's where I would go, but I could be wrong. I mean, I'd have to re-listen to that particular part. Well, of it. they don't commit one way or another, but it would actually make sense that if more than one of the crew members evolved into a ravenous bug bladder beast and they were and all three of them were eaten by three different ones that re-evolved into something else that was able to make them escape that would make sense yes. and then yes. the, the rest of the crew decided to tell the news that that they ate Zaphod. Zaphod had been eaten yep <laughs> yeah but they didn't mention that he escaped no no of course not that wouldn't be the the good bit of news for them <laughs> no no <laughs> But if you're talking about this episode, you know, this part of the episode where but this is where we find out that the whole plot process is being engineered by yes. the brain care specialist. Yes, Gag Hellfront. He's contacted uh, Vogon Jeltz and asking him how things are going. And Vogon Jeltz is saying they're going great. They're just about to destroy the ship, get rid of the last Earthman. And he said that Zaphod was also on board, and he's like, oh, man, the guy owes me money. So he wants to try and go get his money before it happens, but that really doesn't work. <laughs> no, and that's the funny part, because, again, that repeated line comes back in. He does mention that that um, he's one of his most profitable clients, and he says to Vogon, you know, Vogon captain, hold on a minute, and I'll let you know when you should destroy the ship. He goes starts to talking that's when um is it gag how front gag yeah g-a-g yeah yeah that's when gag how front says uh zaphod he, he's just this guy you know <laughs> yeah. and that line just keeps repeating you know yes one of the things that cracks me up is you can always tell what uh, douglas adams feels about different professions because mm -hmm. when when gag Hellfront was upset that they were going to destroy Zaphod along with the Earthman, uh, he was like, oh, no. And Volkan Jeltz is like, oh, was he a friend? He's like, no, no, no. In my profession, uh, we don't make friends. Ah, <laughs> professional detachment. No, no, no. We just don't have the knack. <laughs> yeah, I love that line. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> oh my gosh. So now Ford discovered that they're being followed by the Vogons who are going to destroy the ship because they want to get rid of Arthur. And the Heart of Gold is going to be sent into the infinite improbability drive to escape, but it can't because all of its circuits are irrevocably committed to finding out the answer to a question, which is why Arthur Dent wants dried leaves in boiling water. In other words, tea. So this Mm -hmm. comes back later in spades, this whole scene, with the Nutramatic drink dispenser, again from the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation. The machine will ask you what you want to drink. It will analyze you and your nutritional needs and your palate and what's going to taste good to you but invariably comes out with something that is almost but not quite entirely unlike tea so it (laughs) it doesn't matter who you are you get this same wretched drink that nobody seems to like (laughs) and arthur's arguing with the machine and he throws his cup at it and he's making fun of it and so i'm a masochist on a diet (laughs) so anyway that scene is just hysterical Mm -hmm. and this is where we get to learn about the serious cybernetics complaints department and their motto oh right you know i didn't even make a note about that (laughs) so the serious cybernetics corporation has the their motto share and enjoy and they built it on their headquarters in three-mile-high illuminated letters. The weight of them made the ground give way, and it dropped nearly half their length, and the protruding upper half in the local language reads, Go stick your head in a pig. And, again, one of my favorite jokes, are no longer illuminated. Except on special occasions. <laughs> Except on special occasions. Oh, man. Oh, oh. gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and of course they sing their little song in this ep- in this episode, too. So, Would you like we'll to sing and the song? song. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to <laughs> sing the song. And trust me, even if I sang it, it wouldn't be a, ha- a what does he say, a flattened fifth out of tune. <laughs> Yes, it would be yes. like way out of tune. <laughs> so, so the best part of that is that they play it. So you can't. This is something that you cannot translate to a book. This is no. purely a radio show thing. So they mm-hmm. they play the song. They have these robots singing, and at the end, he goes only slightly worse. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because you, you, listening to it, it it's not doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> but then they go into this uh, episode now where they they go into the séance thing. Yes, although kind of lighthearted and funny, it it's not very deep. Uh, let's see. They have the séance and they contact Zaphod's great grandfather. It is boring and long. Yes. And it just keeps going on. <laughs> In fact, it took me out of the story so much when I first listened to it that when all of a sudden everything is okay and the computer's back and they're able to escape, I was like, what happened? 
because I like I quit <laughs> listening and I had to stop and rewind because this whole back and forth with Zaphod's great grandfather was just it was just numbing. I just I couldn't yeah. take it anymore and I zoned out. But it's brilliant. Arthur was fed up. He asked about the tea. The computer just took over and said, we're going to figure this out. But they couldn't. They were about to die. Zaphod contacted his great-grandfather in a seance. And his great-grandfather came to the computer and gave the computer the answer to why Arthur Dent likes dried leaves boiled. And it's because he's an ignorant monkey who doesn't know better. <laughs> it's like yep that's uh, a good one everywhere he <laughs> goes another line that i like in that series is when uh, the grandfather says uh you know we we dead people have a say, saying up here that life is wasted on the living <laughs> yes yes that is that is even one step further than youth is wasted on the young yes exactly right <laughs> Well, in my notes here, I have that we've made it to episode 10. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know why I had this in episode 9, where they start talking about who is in power and what that means. Oh, I know. Oh, it's because, well, that's what like, grandfather. grandfather was. Yeah, his grandfather said that everybody knows that the president's job is not to wield power, but to draw attention away from it. Yes. And... That's my concept of what a president is. <laughs> An individual yes. that is has no power but is there to draw attention away from it. <laughs> that is a concept that is mentioned multiple times in this whole secondary phase. Yes, yes. So now we start episode 10, and they, they begin with a description of guilt and... And they do a, a callback. They do a callback to primary phase. So they mention that tiny invisible force tendrils composed of guilt tie you to your birthplace. And if you travel far, the tendrils get stretched and distorted. If your birthplace is destroyed, the tendrils of guilt are severed and they just flap about at random, disrupting the space time continuum. They mentioned that the war that started because he said he was having tremendous difficulty with his lifestyle was caused because after the earth was destroyed, he's got these flapping tendrils of guilt disrupting the space-time continuum, and that's what created the wormhole that started that whole war that ended because it was eaten by a dog. Right. <laughs> but as for the story, the heart of gold mm -hmm. comes out of the improbability drive and appears in a white marble cave that's 13 miles in the air and they have no idea what it is <laughs> and there are many things in this series that just make me wonder why why did he come up with this situation or this person mm -hmm. so here not only did he make me ask why about the phrase holy zarquan singing fish he also had the character of Ford ask why. <laughs> so it's <laughs> the characters in his own story don't even know why he's saying this stuff. So anyway, that was a exclamation that Zaphod came up with because of how slippery the cave was. So, but I don't know if you, if you 
Did you write down anything about the slippery cave? Not 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 too much, but uh, I did catch that particular line. Ford and Zaphod are discussing how slippery this cave is, and mm-hmm. Zaphod is looking for something to compare its slipperiness to. And he asks Ford, <laughs> what's the slipperiest thing you can think of? Ford says, this marble. So Zaphod <laughs> says, this marble is as slippery as this marble. <laughs> And then Arthur slips out of the cave, and on the way down, he lands on a giant bird who explains Mm -hmm. what the cave is that he fell out of. So right before everybody leaves the ship, the ship is talking to the group, and he mentions to all of the folks that he believes that they are now hovering or above the planet of Brontetal, and uh, that kept bouncing around in my head, and I think I was thinking of Brontetal, Brontetal. Why would that sound familiar to me? And then I thought about the fact that uh, it's probably a reference to the Bronte sisters, famous English uh, authors. There there were three of them. I believe that uh, it was Emily Bronte who uh, was famously preferred animals over people. Uh, so <laughs> we were talking about women in the story. And I think yes. I, I had a feeling that when he mentioned Brontetal or the Bronte sisters in this particular episode, I think he was thinking that this place would be, that there would be women within this planet and, and there would be some more controls there. And that, we'll get into who's actually there in just a few minutes. But yes. I just thought it was interesting that he would choose Brontetal as the name of this particular planet. Yes, I've, I've never even tried to figure out why he has named things the way they've named them. But the ones that you research and check into i like i always like your explanations of the possibilities (laughs) Mm -hmm. the cave was part of a 15 mile high statue of arthur throwing his cup at the neutromatic drink dispenser after the revolting liquid that it gave him (laughs) and arthur is looking at this and he's like how was this cup supported and the the bird says art (laughs) But but having Arthur come across a statue of himself on a planet reminded me of the Firefly episode of Janesville, where Jane shows up at this planet and there's a statue of him. So I just wanted to yeah, say isn't that, that funny. That was the last episode I'd seen of that show. <laughs> I think that that's probably another one of those ripples in the, the guilt area that projects out into the world. And it's funny that the event happens, you know, minutes before they arrive on the planet. But of course, the statue has been there for how long did they say? Thousands of years? Yes, yes. Yeah, they jump all through time. There is no, there's no just <laughs> chronological progression of time. <laughs> oh, I, I, I did forget to mention one of the things I think is really kind of funny uh, that whole series when they're talking about. Well, when they're inside the cave, quote unquote, and they're they're leaving the uh, ship, I I don't know whether it was Ford or Zaphod says, "Bring the robot," and then and then someone else says, um, "We we might be able to bury him somewhere." Yeah. <laughs> and of course, that's a foreshadowing of what happens to poor Marvin. Yes, <laughs> but I still think it's funny when they tie these little pieces together like that. Yes. So the statue was inhabited by bird people, and they live in his right ear. And they saw a vision of Arthur and learned that even though the machines were extremely nice and polite, 
they did not have to be nice and polite back. So Arthur's revolt against this machine made them realize that they could revolt against the machines. So they packed up all the machines and sent them to a slave planet. And the, that was the first blight of this planet that suffered two different blights. This was the blight right. of the robot. Exactly. And <laughs> during this whole period of time when things are going on, I just love the fact that Arthur is quietly in the background just repeating, don't panic. Don't panic. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what I cannot let you walk through, but probably going there anyway, but <laughs> at the end of the blight of the planet, I'm sorry, the blight of the robots, they have a sequence where you hear some gentleman saying, bring out your dishwashers, bring out your friendly robots. <laughs> and I have to say, that has to be a direct reflection of bring out your dead from Monty Python. Yes, because, of course, yeah, this is just shortly after that that it would have been uh, on air. So I just love yeah. that line when they're talking about bring out your dishwashers, bring out your friendly robots, <laughs> and they're throwing them on the cart. On the cart, yes. <laughs> I will agree. A direct, direct <laughs> reference. <laughs> so eventually, Zaphod and Ford fall out of the cup, and they land on a giant bird, just like Arthur did. Arthur's bird took them to the ear, where he was able to take an elevator to the ground, and that's where he meets the archaeologist named Lintilla. Ford seems to have a better way to get the bird to land, who, for some reason, these birds do not want to touch the ground. He takes his towel, another use for the towel, and covers the bird's <laughs> eyes, mm -hmm. and then just says, you know, follow gravity. And then he was so proud of himself <laughs> that he kept retelling it to, to Zaphod. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that was brilliant. I just have to think about <laughs> I just tell stories in my head, and I think I'm brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh so my in gosh. my notes, we've made it to episode 11. You didn't mention, and I thought you would, uh, and, and I don't know, this is weird to me, but they talk about the worst curse word in the, in the universe or whatever. I have it in my notes, but it was so disconnected from everything that I left it out, but it's <laughs> definitely worth mentioning, so go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> right, and they say that uh, you know the worst uh, the worst curse word in the uh, universe is Belgium, and uh, I just really want to know <laughs> what they had against Belgium to make it work. <laughs> I have no clue. I have no idea, and, and I don't think there's any reference anywhere to why Belgium is so picked on in this particular episode. But it's funny to me. Yes, yes. I also like that they said that the word Belgium is only used one place where they don't know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, and the other thing we find out in the episode is the, the name of the company that is responsible for these foot warriors, which we're about to talk about, of course, and that's uh, Domensaxlin. Does, does that sound right to you? <laughs> yeah, it's Domensax. Lil, and this is a combination of British shoe company names, <laughs> Dolus, Mansfield, Saxon, and Lily. Okay. <laughs> and again, it's just the kind of tie-in that I'm, I begin to expect from him. 
in episode 11, we're continuing the story, obviously, and I wanted to mention Lintilla, mm-hmm. which I think you might know this reference, especially since you're a card collector. But Lintilla, of course, we find out in the episode is a clone, and there are 578,000 million of her in yes. the universe. Uh, Why didn't you just say a billion? A <laughs> No, no, well, just because that, that's the way they describe it, 578,000 million. <laughs> yes. Of course, it mentions that there's a male version being uh, created at the same time, and we intersect with him uh, later in, the, I think it's in actually uh, episode 12. Yes. Yes. During this episode, we, we do talk about Lintilla, and what I was thinking was, I also, that was rattling around in my brain, and I thought about it, it's... The reason I thought you would know is because you've probably received and looked for lenticular printed cards. Oh, yes. Um, does, does that ring a bell? Lenticular cards, yes. Okay, so lenticular is a, a way of producing a print that has repeated lines. So if you look very closely, there's tiny little lines that are created, and it's created by a lenticular lens that are used to produce a printed image with an illusion of depth in other words it gives you the illusion of 3d yes and motion yeah exactly it'll do motion or it'll give you a 3d image so the lenticular card or the lenticular printed cards it's for me it's the source of the name lentilla and of course because there's thousands and thousands of little lines that are created on these cards that that's where the repeated pattern comes from and lentilla okay. The word, the name, comes from. I wouldn't. I didn't put it together, but makes sense again. (laughs) I just think it's really creative when they when these authors do that. You know, there's another line in here that I thought you might talk about, and that's when Arthur says we could talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I remember him saying that, but I did not write anything down about that. Yeah, I just thought it was funny because again, isn't that a reference to the? U.S., and this is an English show. It is definitely a United States reference. Exactly. So this is funny because I, after I was looking at that, I thought to myself, well, we didn't really answer the question about SeaWorld or the kind of joke that was made about the dolphins from right. way back. And I did look it up, and it appears that they did not, in fact, have any kind of SeaWorld or our animal museum kind of what do you even call it? Aquarium. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> anyway, at that particular time when those stories were written, they did exist in Florida and California. Oh, okay. Yes. Makes sense. And again, like I think I said, I like that answer regardless if it was true. But now that I know it's true, <laughs> it's even better. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. And of course, right there at the beginning of the episode is where Marvin falls out of the cup. Yes. He doesn't land on a bird, though. No, he gets buried a mile deep in the ground. (laughs) And then Lintilla and Arthur are running away from the foot soldiers, and Lintilla runs into her other clones and says to the other Lintilla, I think he's harmless when referring to Arthur. Arthur, yes. Mostly harmless, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And, uh... Of course, they go on from there. The other little joke that gets spun in there is that after Marvin creates this hole in the ground, which is something that these archaeologists, ladies, the Lintillas, are looking for, she says, 
that's impossible that it happened. And the other Lintilla says, no, I don't know about impossible, just highly improbable. <laughs> right. So again, the repeated <laughs> concepts of the improbability field just keep rolling back or, you know, back and forwards through this entire thing. <laughs> I only have two other notes about this episode, I think, and that's about Arthur. When Lentillas are questioning Arthur about what he sees in the layers of the land, he mentions that they look like a layer cake to him. And she says, layer cake? And he says, yes, I'm quite interested in layer cake. <laughs> <laughs> and Marvin's sitting at the bottom of the cave that he's created by falling through the planet. He goes through this period of understanding what his current conditions are, and he says to himself, I ache, therefore I am. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At the end of this episode, Arthur and Lentilla are captured by one of the Shoe Corporation executives and his robot. Mm -hmm. This is where they are taken to his office, and they're told of the planet's second blight, the blight of shoes. And this is yes. where we learn about the shoe event horizon. I did not write down this whole thing. Did you write anything down about this or no? No, I actually didn't. But it's certainly one of the things that I remember most from my original listening. Which I find interesting because I also find that it was one of the things I remember the most from this whole secondary phase. And it's what I wrote the least about. <laughs> Yeah, that, that is funny, but it's really strange because this shoe event horizon that they talk about, I've seen it in its most practical application. Here in, in New Jersey, where I live, close to where my parents live, there's a mall. And as we all know, the mall culture, mall life has changed over the course yes. of time. And of course, it had great big anchor stores and all that kind of stuff in the ancient past when I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> and they had all kinds of different exciting places to go to and visit. But as the mall life and as malls deteriorated, each store would close. The big store would close or another store would close. And uh, as those stores closed, the little stores would pop in there. And each one of them closed and turned into a shoe store. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and by the time I got back to uh, living in New Jersey, that particular mall is has got like eight shoe stores and about nothing else in it <laughs> so even though this is supposedly a i don't know a history of a crazy world it certainly is a real in my opinion economic reality um, that these shoes yes. become more and more popular and I, I always wondered about that and of course we always joke about the fact that ladies like shoes and one of the gals that I work with, or say should say women, one of the women I work with has always asserted that the reason that she buys shoes so often is because it's the one thing that doesn't change sizes over the course of their life. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> and maybe we should just leave it at that. <laughs> Send your email to Brian Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. At digitalwatchespodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> I assume that you were going to get into hurting first. I am not going to get into hurting first. <laughs> <laughs>
You're not going to get into Hay Curtain first? No, I'm not going to get into Hay Curtain first. But that's what's funny about Hay Curtain first. When Lintilla asks Hurton first, what's wrong with the Foot Warriors? He says to Lintilla, well, his feet are the wrong size for his shoes. Oh, that's right. Yes, I did not. I remember that, but I did not have it written down. Because that's the robot, the limping robot that he keeps telling not to limp. Yep, yep, yep. It's just hysterical to me because obviously they could put different size shoes on them. But I don't know how they could be robots because they mentioned blisters and and stuff like that. They're very advanced robots. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That works for me. (laughs) Two things I'm going to mention real quick. Quickly, just in case somebody's listening to this who hasn't heard secondary phase and has absolutely no idea what the shoe event horizon is. Basically, it is an economic thing where it became impossible to produce anything other than shoes. And then the entire economy and planet collapsed. So the layer in the rock that Arthur was looking at that he said looked like layer cake was actually a layer of compressed shoes because that's how many shoes existed on the planet at that time. At the very end of this episode, Marvin climbs out of his hole and finds Arthur and Lintilla, <laughs> and they escape from the shoe corporation executive. And Zaphod and Ford end up in a derelict spaceport, and they find a space liner that still seems to have power. And this is where we go to episode 12 and learn about the space liner. We start episode 12. Zaphod and Ford find the space liner that has been delayed for 900 years. And all of the passengers have been kept in stasis. They briefly come alive and there's chaos and screaming and they're trying to give them wet napkins. And and then they all eventually go back to sleep. But they're talking to the automated Uh, flight attendant about what's going on and trying to explain that civilization has gone. Let these people go. I mean, there's no civilization. And they're like, well, another civilization is likely to arise. So until then, there will be a slight delay. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're waiting for the lemon-soaked towels. (laughs) Towelettes. And they, they wake every 10 years just to have coffee and biscuits, I think is what they say. So. Yes. <laughs> or tea and biscuits, I would think. Tea I and biscuits. Suspect. Yes. I also have a little note here that I just thought it was a little funny. when Lintilla is talking to Arthur and uh, Lintilla says to Arthur, well, maybe we should go over to that spaceport and uh, find some parts to fix our ship. And Arthur, of course, saying, well, I'm, I wouldn't be very good at fixing any ships. And Lintilla says, well, you could take some evening classes. And Arthur says, do we really have time for that? And she says, yeah, I have a bottle of them right here, these little pink ones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> take, a, take a pill. <laughs> know how to fix a ship. Exactly. <laughs> Which I love that line. But my next note here is about two of the Lintilla clones meeting the Alitnils and get married. Now, we didn't really talk about why there are 586,000 million lintillas, but that's because a cloning machine got out of sync and they started producing a new lintilla before the first one was finished. So if they ever shut it off, they would be committing murder and they couldn't commit murder. So they didn't know what to do and they left it going 
they eventually came up with a, a way to shut the machine off, but they don't really give us that answer. They just say it was unpleasant. But now they've got all of these <laughs> yes. lentillas that they need to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and of course, a litnil is the reverse of lentilla. But of course, I yes. figured you already knew that. <laughs> yeah, the, the opposite. <laughs> yes. So yes. they get them. They get them married, and they sign the marriage licenses. But the licenses aren't marriage licenses. They are agreements to cease to be. And then they kiss, and it's like matter and antimatter get together, and poof, they're both gone. But one Lintilla is remaining, and she is with Arthur and Marvin. And they say, on the way to the spaceport to find parts to repair Lintilla's ship, reality takes a break, and the ground rises bringing them to the cup where the heart of gold is waiting. So when you're listening to this, you're like, why in the world would that have happened? But now again, this is not a chronological order thing. We're going to go back in time and we're going to learn why reality took a break. And this <laughs> is where Zaphod finally meets Zarniwoop, who we were told about in the first episode of <laughs> Secondary Phase. And he doesn't actually appear until the final episode. But he is in the first class cabin of that space liner that has been delayed. Correct. So when Zaphod meets Zarniwoop, they, they tell us that 20 years ago, Zarniwoop, Zaphod, and others came up with a scheme to find out who's really ruling the universe. Because they, as they've explained a couple of times, the president isn't the one ruling, he's the one distracting from. So they wanted to find out who it actually was. Zaphod stole the heart of gold to bring it to the artificial universe that was created in Zarniwoop's office, where he was on his intergalactic cruise. If any of us listening wondered, like Zaphod did, when he entered the artificial universe, we're just told to work it out for ourselves. <laughs> so he doesn't, he doesn't even know. At least in the radio series, he doesn't. Right. But it's pretty obvious to me, anyway, that it, he entered it as soon as he walked into the office with the. Rooster. But he didn't bring the heart of gold. He has to bring the heart of oh. gold into the artificial universe. Right, but he's not on the heart of gold until after he's gone through the vortex. Yeah, that's a good question because I, from from the the sequence of events, he gets dropped off by the freighter. He gets into the artificial universe by entering the fifth floor because he couldn't have gone through the vortex without being in the artificial universe because it's only in the artificial universe that Zaphod is the most important person yes. in the universe. So that's how he survives is because it's a false version of the vortex. Well, the, it was created especially for him. Therefore, he is the most important person. Correct. Did I miss something? Do we know how he gets onto the, the spaceship after that? Because he says he's drunk for a week, and that's the period of time when he gets back onto the ship and rescues Ford and Arthur. We did not find out what happened or how it happened, but if you just think about what we're told, Zaphod is captured with extreme measures by stealing the whole offices of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and brought to the Frog Star. Who knows what happened to everybody else in that building, but they're all on the Frog Star. They take him, and they put him in the total perspective vortex. He's like, I just learned I'm a really great guy. 
presumably they then just let him go because the next thing we know he's on the heart of gold and he's rescuing Arthur and Ford off of prehistoric earth after being drunk for a week. Yeah, exactly. I would have imagined that when he walked into Zarni Whoop's office, that's where they said they created the artificial universe. But I don't know how he would have brought the heart of gold into it. I guess you just have to expand your credulity. <laughs> As I said, he doesn't even know. That's why he just says, work it out for yourself. <laughs> or I got lucky, but you just keep. I repeating. got lucky. Yes. Well, we think because they do mention in the previous sequence when he's on the freighter that he was hitchhiking the hard way. And I always wondered exactly what that meant. And I'm assuming that it meant without the sub ether thumb and all that kind of right. stuff. Right. Yeah, they do just say the hard way. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But if we go back just a tiny step, of course, it all bounces back and forth. The, the notes that I wrote down here about the Lintillas and, and Arthur escaping their situation, they're being chased by the foot warriors. And Arthur's like, well, that, you know, it would really help if we had a gun of some sort. And Lintilla says, oh, here, here's a gun of some sort. And they use the gun to get through their predicament. At the end, Arthur shouts out for them to pause for a moment while the weddings are taking place between Alitnil and Lintillas. And uh, <laughs> shortly after that, the one, the other Lintilla that survives uh, says, what happened to all the foot soldiers or foot warriors? And uh, Arthur says, uh, the flying chiropodist arrived and they all went off to have a talk with him. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get into the core of the story, in my opinion. Yes. Finally. Finally. So this is where they expand a little bit upon the president's job being to distract attention away from power. And they mention that those people who most want to rule people are those least suited to do it. And anyone who is capable of getting themselves made president should on no account be allowed to do the job. <laughs> so Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that is some of the truisms, I guess, that I find most mm -hmm. fascinating. Yes. Boils the entire political spectrum down into uh, one line. Yes. Yes, it does. It also reminds me of Groucho Marx's comment of never wanting to belong to a club that would have him as a member. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, I have another one of these disconnects of which is it. We are first led to believe that Zaphod stole the Heart of Gold to find the legendary planet of Magrathea. Now, maybe that's just what he was telling himself, but the real reason is that he really stole it to find the man who rules the universe. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. But we also know that, well, we talked about it before, where that aspect of the adventure is being controlled by Benji and Frankie. Correct. Uh, so we know that Trillian has Benji and Frankie with her, and they are, in fact, the, the ones that kind of drive the adventure. Zaphod has no idea what he's doing. So he, he's doing things, I don't even want to say subconsciously, because he's not supposed to know what's going on. Right. It appears to me that he's easily swayed from his objective because he's not consciously making any directions. In fact, despite his singular lack of exertion in that direction, the story continues. <laughs> <laughs> he 
it's out of his brain that the process is going on. So I can see that easily being controlled by the mice. He needs to steal the heart of gold to find the man who rules the universe. And the mice are guessing, hey, as long as he's going to steal the heart of gold, let's go to Magrathea. They orchestrated mm -hmm. the Magrathea leg after he stole it. He doesn't know why he's doing things. He's just doing them because he's Zaphod. Exactly. So they end up meeting a man who rules the universe and his cat, who he named the Lord. Conversations with him are maddening. He will not admit to anything as being real and only claims that they are his experiences. And he has no idea if anybody else's experiences are the same as his. In our introductory episode, a book that I recommended was Stranger in a Strange Land. The man who rules the universe, in a way, reminds me of a type of character from that book that they call a fair witness. A fair witness is an individual trained to observe events and report exactly what is seen and heard, making no extrapolations or assumptions. So in the book, a fair witness is asked what color a particular house is. The answer they give is, it's white on this side, making no assumption that the other sides of the house are the same color as the one that they see. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what this guy reminds me of, because he's like, well, I can't really repeat any of his answers. But like I was saying, he only says, this is what I believe. You may believe something different. He also says that people who come and ask him questions might just be singing to his cat. How is he to know? <laughs> so, so listening to him was just maddening to me. Answer the question. So I don't know how they could have him rule the universe because he never actually gives them an answer. Oh, well, he does give them an answer. We don't know the answer. I mean, he walks in there and one of the first questions they ask him is, does he rule the universe? And his response is, I try not to. Yes. <laughs> so this, for me, this particular part of the story is tremendously fascinating. I, I really, really like this part. And if I could, I'd just play it for you guys on, on the podcast. <laughs> you could just listen to it. And, yes. and that would tell you everything you need to know about how frustrating the conversation is and the back and forth that goes through there. But I, I mean, I really love what he says. When someone says, what is your name? He says, it seems odd to me to give a bundle of vague sensory perceptions a name. The way that he understands his own universe is amazing to me when you, you look at it. He defines this universe just like you said. What he sees, what he experiences is his universe. And he does say in this, the narrative, as you understand how he rules or, or what goes on or what he does, that people ask him questions, and then he responds with answers that affect his universe. So we don't know what those answers are because we don't, we aren't given those answers. But one of the questions that he knows he was asked was, should Zaphod be allowed to blow up the earth? Yes. It it's not phrased that particular way. But at that moment, Arthur realizes that Zaphod is the reason that the earth has been blown up. And he storms out. Correct. And leaves. Yes, he leaves. He leaves, he leaves with he the heart, heart of, gold. of gold. And leaves the planet. <laughs> <laughs> this whole series, to me, is, is fascinating. Because 
like you say, it might be frustrating, but I, I, I just love the way he says um, when they say, can we ask you some questions? He said, all right, you can sing to my cat if you like. And <laughs> right. says, they, they say to him, well, w- would your cat enjoy that? He says, I, I don't know if my cat would enjoy that. <laughs> How could I? <laughs> and to me, that's the perfect response because you, you can't be within someone else's brain. You can only be within your own. So each of us have our own universe and we all create that universe by what we see and hear. So it, it, we literally exist on an island of our own creation. Um, and this is what I think is absolutely fascinating about this guy because obviously he has no desire to control other people, no, no. desire to be a, a leader or a boss or anything like that. So by our definition from just prior to this, where it's correct, people that do desire that kind of power should never be given that kind of power. It makes sense to go to an individual who has no desire to yes. be in that position and has the kind of perspective that you talked about in The Stranger in a Strange Land. And I love it when he says, and the Lord knows I'm not a cruel man. And that's when you find <laughs> out that, of course, his cat is named the Lord. Um, yes. <laughs> I just love that line. Because yeah, they thought they caught him. They thought they, oh, so you do believe in a higher power. <laughs> no, it's my cat. <laughs> I mean, it even starts from the first time they meet them. They are apparently standing in the rain when he answered the door. Yes. And he's like, well, if warmth makes you feel dry, then, you know, <laughs> you know come on in. <laughs> right. He makes no assumptions of what other people are thinking or what their universe is all about. Yes. Hey, you, you might enjoy standing in the rain if, if you, you know, but if, if you would like to be warm and dry, please come into the house. Come inside. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I love this character. I really do. I think I've mentioned this to you before, and I don't think you agreed with me, but to me, I think it is a callback. In episode three of Primary Phase, they told mm-hmm. the story about the planet inhabited by the Byros, or in American terms, ballpoint pens. Yes. An expedition was sent to the spatial coordinates that Viet Vujigig had claimed for this planet. And they only discovered a small asteroid inhabited by a solitary old man who claimed repeatedly that nothing was true, although later he was discovered to be lying. Is that the man who rules the universe? Yes. I think we even mentioned that when we discussed that. Well, to me, we we talked about another character that I guess it's in the book. We, We might interact with it also, but I believe that that reference is the same character as the one we're talking to in this episode okay because that's that's the way i i read it it's like in primary phase when you're listening to it and he throws out this story and for no apparent reason he mentions the solitary old man who claimed nothing was true and then all of a sudden here's here's another person living all alone basically saying nothing was true (laughs) i think it's the same person or at least inspired by i do too I think it's coherent for the story and the plot. And now we have come to the end where Zaphod, Ford, and Zarniwu are stuck in this cabin with the ruler of the universe because the Heart of Gold, along with Arthur, Lintilla, and Marvin, zipped away after Arthur found out that Zaphod was partially responsible for ordering the destruction of the Earth. 
And that's when Ford turns to Zaphod and says, Zaphod, I want you to know I respect you, but just not very much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that is a great place to, to end this episode. So say goodbye, Brian. Is it my turn to say goodbye? Yep, it's your turn to say goodbye. (laughs) Okay, goodbye. Thank you for listening to Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea. Look for us the first Thursday of every month for a new episode. A very special thanks goes out to Luke, Max, Greg, and Tim Lesnick for arranging and performing our opening theme. We would also like to thank our talented friends and family for their voice work on our introductions and commercials. A special thank you goes out this episode to Dr. Julie Lesnick for her opening. We are very pleased that she is as big a fan of unnecessary censorship as we are. Visit our website at digitalwatchesareaprettyneatidea.buzzsprout.com where you can find links to all my Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy-inspired t-shirt designs. You can find us on Facebook and YouTube as Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea and on Twitter at Watches Idea. If you'd like to contact us, our email is digitalwatchespodcast at gmail.com. This has been a Fruits for Thought production.